Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery. And today I'm excited to have Daniel Scribner, uh, who's the CEO of Flow. Uh, he was earlier the head of design for Digit and Square. Uh, Daniel uh, is an early stage investor in businesses like Superhuman, Codex, Notion, Stance, and many others. Uh, Daniel uh, is also a general partner at Black Letter Ventures. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Awesome. So, so Daniel, how did you get into design and you know, get into investing into startups? Yeah, so my background um, is, is pretty different, I think, than uh, most people that I've kind of met or worked with. So uh, for me, when I was, uh, you know, growing up, I was, was definitely not attracted to design, you know, and in, uh, in middle school and high school, um, at, you know, I, my, one of my least favorite classes was art. I just felt like I wasn't good at it. And I think for most people, when they think of design, they, they basically think of art and kind of a modern, maybe kind of technology focused, at least today, version of art. Um, and that was not uh, appealing to me. And that was not kind of where I was at uh, growing up. So I really stumbled into design. And the way I stumbled into it was uh, when I was in high school, one of the classes I took over um, the summer uh, semester uh, break was uh, all about HTML. So at that you know point in time, this was um, the 90s. You know we didn't have CSS. Uh, I don't even know if JavaScript was really around at that time. So when you were, if you wanted to create a website, you were basically doing it all um, in HTML, and that was interesting to me. Um, and you know I took the class mainly because um, it just felt like it was more interesting than the others. But I wouldn't say I was particularly. Um, you know, I didn't want to just build websites. I just took it because it seemed slightly interesting. But what I quickly fell in love with was that I could, in a few hours, uh, have an idea, be able to build it, uh, and then be able to share it with other people. And, you know, once you go through that progression a couple times, I think something that becomes pretty obvious is, um, you know, you, you've created this thing, you want to go and share it with somebody. And what I kept finding myself struggling with is uh, it just... <laughs> it didn't look good. You know, I, I wasn't, I, you know, I felt like something was missing. And so that led me down the road of kind of starting to learn about what that is. Like, how do you take something that's functional and turn it into something that's appealing and attractive and, um, you know, has some more emotional or uh, kind of narrative storytelling uh, qualities to it. Uh, and that was really my entrance into design. And then from there, it's been a little bit of a meandering road, but that was, that was how I got started. Interesting. And, uh, you know, what can founders learn to understand and analyze design? Because, you know, you've been part of uh, great companies like Apple, uh, you know, of, of which I'm a big fan and Digit and Square. So, so are, there, are there any rules which people need to follow in order to create great designs? Yeah, it's a great question. And I wish I had, um, you know, a handful of rules written down, um, you know, just to take a step back for a second in, in uh, my career so far, I've worked at basically every level, uh, in you know, in the design profession, uh, from, you know, the kind of lowest level designer on the totem pole to being a freelance designer, doing it all to myself, to being an art director, leading a small team, 
and eventually a creative director leading, you know, bigger teams. And then um, at Square, I got the chance to be a director of design, head of design at the company and um, take the design team from around four to 40, fleshing out a bunch of different disciplines from, you know, print and packaging and graphic design to web design to product design to video and photography, uh, copywriting and, and how all those things come, uh, come together. Uh, and I've also worked as an advisor uh, with companies as well too, you know, at very different stages, but a lot of them have been early stage technology companies that are, they know that design is important for what they're doing. Um, and it, you know, I think people's perspectives on design changes a lot depending on the industry, depending on really what they're going after and, and the type of company that they want to build and how they want to compete um, in their space. So the thing that I would, uh, you know, say to kind of maybe start to answer that question is I think it's really helpful first and foremost, that people kind of have the right context to think about design. And I think again, the failure mode I've seen time and time and time again is people are, what they're really after is the first order effective design. And what I mean by that is what they're after is they just want to have an appealing product. So they're a fan of, uh, you know, say Tesla, say Apple, uh, you know, luxury brands, Nike, um, you know, fashion brands. And what they really want is they just want to be iconic or they want to have that look or that feel or that aesthetic that helps them stand apart. And I think the people that approach it really at that surface level of uh, they don't, uh, one, I just don't think they really understand the power of design. And I could talk about that in a second. Um, but I think it goes a lot deeper than that veneer that a lot of people are initially attracted to. But I also think that that is the, uh, the way uh, to immediately put kind of design within your company into a failure mode, uh, which is to just say, you know, I think of design as just something, you know, it's almost like, hey, we've built a house and it's uh, taken us, you know, 12 months to do it. And now, uh, you know, I want to bring in the designers and I'm going to give them, you know, two weeks, say a month, and I just really want them to just pretty it up. And I think that uh, that just doesn't work point blank. And so the, you know, to the, I think the foundation for thinking about, um, you know, design correctly in your company is really understanding that at the end of the day, it's an input into what you end up shipping out into the world. And what I mean by that is I think the companies that do design the best, whether it's, uh, you know, Apple, uh, Superhuman, you know, there's a bunch of um, examples that I could rattle off today, but I think the companies that do design best don't see it as a, you know, a veneer or something that they want. They see it as an approach to solving problems and as a capacity in their company um, that can help them think through problems correctly, that can help them identify the right way to build features. Um, and really, I guess the way that I think about it is, is if you do it well, you know, design is a thread that runs through everything that you do. So when someone comes to your website and, um, you know, sees the way that you present your product to the world and sees the way that you present your brand and your company to the world, you know, and the, uh, the best companies that aligns and snaps into place with the way they build their features, the way they think about the product, whether they think about building, you know, a super powerful product or a super lean product. And so I think what, you know, uh, what I really learned to appreciate at a company like Apple, uh, which for me, I kind of consider the, you know, boot camp uh, that I t ended up uh, being fortunate enough early in my career to kind of uh, enroll in that taught me how to do repeatably great design again and again and again and build that capacity up, um, you know, in a company and, and uh, learning how to, how to do that at, at scale. What I really learned there is 
uh, what it looks like, what it feels like to be in a company where design is aligned. Um, and it's important at every level. It's, you know, at the level of what should we build? It's at the level of how should we build it? It's at the level of what does this look like and feel like? And, you know, then it's threaded all the way through, uh, to the packaging and the marketing and the branding. Right. And, and interesting, you talked about Apple because, you know, Steve Jobs uh, had, you know, a design aligned with, with the values and the culture at Apple. But uh, you were also work with Square, uh, which is, uh, of, you know, uh, uh, which is a which is a great fintech company, but also uh, because you've directly reported to uh, to Jack Dorsey, who's also the CEO of Twitter. And, you know, since since Steve Jobs is, is no longer there, uh, there are a lot of stories about Jack Dorsey and, uh, Elon Musk being, uh, you know, the, uh, being there as the, as the tech Titans. So what was your experience working with Jack Dorsey and, you know, what is, what is the experience founders can, uh, can learn, uh, f- from, you know, uh, from, uh, your learnings from, you know, working directly with him? Sure. No, that's a great question. Um, I mean, yeah, no, um, I learned a tremendous amount from, uh, from Jack. I learned a lot from Steve peripherally. You know, I didn't, I never got to interact with Steve directly, but, uh, when I was at Apple was towards the end of his tenure. And so I got to see him around campus. I got to, you know, get feedback that he would give, um, on the, the, the projects we were working on. Um, and, you know, I guess the, the thing that I see that ties, um, you know, design focused, I think, product focused, quality focused CEOs together. And I would, you know, put all of those CEOs in that bucket um, is a couple of things. I think one is uh, Ray Dalio, um, who's the founder of Bridgewater and, you know, uh, somewhat recently has published the book Principles, has a really interesting title that I think applies really well um, to all of these. And that's, uh, it's, he calls them shapers. And what that really is, is someone who can um, engage at every level in the process. So again, at the highest, earliest strategic level of what should we be building and why to how are we going to go about building this and, and, and again, why? So like what, so you decide, you know, as an example, say something like you decide to build an iPad, which you might think of as, um, you know, sitting somewhere between a phone and a laptop. And maybe that's an initial decision as we want to go and build this. Then the next thing is how do we build it? What's the form factor? What's the feature set? And, you know, all of that, ideally is underpinned with value. So, you know, we're not going to build the most powerful product. We're not going to build the most feature rich product. We're instead going to do this, um, you know, so they can engage at that level and then they can engage equally well. Um, once the product is built into how do you message it and how do you communicate it? And so it's this ability, you know, throughout the arc of a project or throughout the arc of, a, um, yeah, a, a body of work, um, or a product line to engage, uh, at every level and be able to, to shape it. And I think really the qualities that, um, that you need to do that really well, or I think one that is, um, you know, uh, sometimes people don't appreciate it <laughs> because <laughs> all of those leaders are really hard leaders, meaning I right. think they all have exceptionally high bars for what uh, they aspire to build and what is good enough or, you know, worthy of building at the, at the company. And I think that's something that's really underappreciated and not talked about enough is I think at the end of the day, it all really starts with, you just have to have a ridiculously high bar. Um, you know, and that's something I've tried to take and apply, uh, to the companies I've invested in the companies I've advised, you know, the companies that I'm, um, help 
helping to build is I think just a really, um, yeah, a really rare quality because it's not, it's difficult, you know, it's difficult to care so much that you're always thinking much more about the gulf between what you're looking at and what it could become. You know, it's difficult time and time again, when the team comes to you with ideas or suggestions or new features to, uh, you know, apply that really high bar to the team and, and, um, you know, let them know when, they're meeting the mark or when, when something is, is falling below the mark. And so I think that's something they've all had in common. And Jack, definitely a quality that Jack had is Jack just had an enormously high bar for what was good enough within the, within the team. And then I think another one is, um, you know, just this aspiration to build something great. And I think that that needs to be there as well too. And great, not just in the sense of like, I think some people, you know, everyone has slightly different aspirations. Um, but I think there's some founders who aspire to build big profitable businesses and that, you know, equals great in their mind. I think there are some founders and, uh, you know, CEOs who aspire to build something great. Maybe that means technically, you know, it's just a technically amazing product. And then I think there are some, uh, you know, founders and CEOs who really want to build something great in the biggest sense of the word, meaning they want to, they want their products to be bar none the best. They want their company to be different and better than the competition. You know, they want to build a big, long-term, enduring business. They want to have a big impact with their products. And I think a lot of them also want to have a, uh, they think about what they're building, not just in a business sense, but almost in a cultural sense. Uh, and I think that's something, that's maybe the thing that I was um, just most amazed at and kind of in awe at, at, at Jack is he just had, he had the ability to be super in the weeds and the businesses he was a part of and the businesses that he was leading and building. Uh, and also always understand how that tied back to culture and where people were and what people were thinking about and what the trends were that were happening and really making sure that he was building his business in a way that it could have a cultural impact. And I think that's something a lot of people don't maybe misunderstand a little bit about Apple is yes, they're good at building products. Yes, they're good at marketing, but they also aspire to be cultural leaders. You know, that's why Apple ads always feature music that you've likely never heard of before. That's right. why their ads are done in a really different way, uh, you know, in a really opinionated way or a really high gloss, you know, kind of execution type way because they don't just aspire to do something good, meaning it like is at the bar of what exists today. They aspire to do something new, to contribute a new note and to have that be something that resonates with people, um, you know, culturally. Right. And, you know, there's something different about uh, Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk is because they run multi, uh, you know, they, they run two uh, multi-billion dollar companies. So is it true that, you know, Jack would uh, work on certain days on, on Twitter and on certain days on Square? Yeah. And I think just, um, so on that, I mean, yeah, everyone's got, I think what everyone struggles with there is we all have the same amount of time. <laughs> we all have 24 <laughs> hours in a day. We all have 365 days and there is only so much, um, that, that we can do. But I think what, uh, what I find kind of fascinating about just the controversy around someone like Jack or someone like Elon is that people just have this really hard fixed, I think extremely limited understanding in their mind that really you can only just do one thing well. No. Um, and I think what those founders understand is that it, like uh, what they understand. And I think what they think other people don't understand is 
when you're, it's not, it would be very different if it was saying, you know, I'm a small business owner. I'm going to work in both of these businesses eight hours a day. Like that is a surefire way to burn yourself out and have both of them be mediocre businesses. But if instead you say, I'm the leader of this business, my job is to think about it like a machine, which I think is how the best CEOs, the best founders think about their business. It's a machine that they're creating that is going to create results, but their job is to be kind of, you know, really at this high, high level, looking down on the business as if it were a machine and understanding how to get it, hum, you know, humming and, and clicking and, and producing the results that they want. And when you look at it that way, you take a very different approach. And it's not about the number of hours in a day. It's about what's the vision and how can I make sure the team understands it? What are the leaders that we need in the business? What are the qualities that they need? What do we need to be absolutely incredible at? You know, like, what do we need to be in the top 10%, top 1% at? And how do I recruit those people? How do I create a culture that's self-reinforcing so that, you know, I don't always have to be stepping in and catching things and reminding people of what we should be doing, but the culture is everybody is reinforcing the same ideas and everyone is holding the bar at this level and everyone is, has a good understanding of what we do and why and what we don't do and, and why we don't do it that way. And, um, you know, that's what Jack and, and, uh, and Elon, I think, do really, really well is they see themselves as the gatekeeper of the vision and where the company is headed. They see themselves as, you know, the kind of, um, the bar for quality. So they're always going to hold that bar for quality, meaning they're going to make sure they have exceptional leaders on their leadership team. And that, that trickles down, you know, at every level in the company. Um, and they approach it again as, as if they're building a machine. And I think that is, uh, one, I think that's the right way to think about it. And if you think about it that way, there's no reason you can't be running four five, six, seven, ten 10 companies. Um, and there are examples of, uh, you know, of that. Um, and I think even something like Berkshire Hathaway shows right. that as a, you know, a business leader, you can create an organization that can have multiple thriving companies in it. And, you know, you're going to be involved in, in different ones at different levels. And some you're going to spend more time with and less time in, and, and maybe that's going to ebb and flow over time. Um, but yeah, just to put a point on it, I just think there's something, just the, the fact that that's as controversial as it is. And the fact that, you know, even investors, uh, professional investors and analysts in business can't seem to understand that there's nothing inherently, uh, there's no inherent limits that mean that someone can't build two incredible businesses at once. It's just all about one, the beliefs that we all hold. And I think generally how limited those are, uh, or how limiting they are. And then two, you know, just the, the way that we think about it. And I think a lot of people still equate output with effort put into it. And that effort is usually thought about in terms of time instead of that effort being the way you approach it, the team that you build and just thinking of it as, you know, you're this lever or you're this, uh, you know, point, point of leverage. And that, you know, if you think about it that way, um, there's no reason you can't build multiple big businesses at once. Uh, no, very interestingly, you pointed out that, you know, if you don't limit your beliefs, especially when it comes to, you know, companies like Berkshire and uh, what Elon uh, and, uh, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey have done is uh, if you delegate the work and build a culture where you, you know, the business owners who, who are looking at the responsibilities, I think that is, that is the way uh, to go about it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I would just add, like, it's not I, what I'm not saying and what I definitely think is not true is that is not the easy route. And yeah. if you are going to go and try to, you know, just going out and saying, I'm going to build one incredible business, it takes uh, an 
extraordinary level of effort and focus yeah. and, uh, you know, just, uh, ambition and drive and grit to be able to do that in, in one business. So I'm not saying that this is for everyone. I think it takes a very particular individual to be able to do that, yeah. uh, especially over long periods no, interesting. of time. And, uh, you know, then you've been part of, uh, some, some great companies, uh, and, uh, especially like Apple and Square. So do you think design is still a very important company? competitive advantage in, uh, in taking up, especially in consumer companies? Excuse me. Yeah, I think it's important, not just in consumer companies. And I think um, the way I would, uh, you know, the way I think about it and the way I think I would su- kind of suggest that other people think about it is, is really this, you know, if you look at, if you look at the modern company, whether it is selling to businesses, whether it's selling to consumers, um, I think a few things are true. One, there's much more competition than there's ever been. And I think the number of competitors in any space is growing year over year at this point. And that's a result of a bunch of things. That's a result of, uh, you know, companies like Square that make it incredibly easy and have removed a lot of the barriers to entry that used to exist to open up a traditional business um, that's brick and mortar or a, you know, kind of digital remote at home um, kind of hobby or lifestyle type business. You know, it's also companies like Stripe, companies like Shopify. There's just been a wave of innovation that is, that has lowered the bar dramatically from what it takes to be able to start a business and start, you know, competing for customers and revenue in a given space. Um, And then, you know, you, in each business, there's also just an extreme amount of competition. And I think that competition exists on different levels. You know, I think it, maybe it used to exist more on the feature level. So, uh, you know, you would have people that were just comparing almost like tech specs of different products. Like, well, this has these five features and this has this six features. Um, so I'm, of course I'm going to go with this one. And I think what you see across the board today, um, you know, whether it's a company like Salesforce or Slack or, uh, you know, a direct to consumer business they're what they're competing for more than anything today is attention recognition and to be able to break through the noise. So people will actually give them a few moments. And that few moments can be, you know, look at your ad, watch your ad. Uh, it could be interact on your website. It could be order something. Um, but all of those things I think are, uh, you know, it's competition is just very different. And so the way I think about design is, Uh, in that world, one of the best skill sets you can have is the ability to stand out from the competition. And I think it's, uh, you know, there are entire companies that are built on this. I think there are businesses like, um, you know, in the U S we have businesses like smile direct club, um, and, uh, you know, Casper. And these are, if you really look at them, they, and you look at their product, a lot of times their product is not all that remarkable. You know, right. it's a, it's a new disruptive take on our super old idea, but I think the product in and of itself isn't enough to move the needle and isn't enough for people to pay attention. And so what you have to do is take something that is new and innovative and interesting, but you need to wrap it in something that makes it appealing and that makes it stand out and that makes it engage and connect with, you know, consumers. And really at the end of the day, uh, you know, whether you're a business owner or you're an individual looking for shoes, so if you're a business owner looking for a software tool, or I'm just me looking to buy, you know, a shirt or pants or shoes that, that still exists. Like you still have to 
break through the noise and get to me. You have to engage me. You have to understand that I've got limited time and a bunch of other things competing for my attention. And you need to be able to get across what you're doing, why I should care about it and what's different about you in a really succinct way. And so I think that's the way to, that's the right way to think about design. And when you think about it that way, I think I would describe it as an, like a superpower that you can bolt onto any business that I think will allow you to compete uh, much more successfully if you know how to use that skill well. Interesting. And, uh, you know, you've been a part of the design teams for, uh, for quite a long time. And now uh, you, you're uh, uh, building Flow, which is, uh, which is a project management software. So how is it different from any other, you know, project management software? And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, why did you join Flow? No, great, great question. Uh, so I've been the CEO at Flow for a little over a year now. And um, the company's been around for 10 years. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of success in these last 10 years. You know, just the fact that we've been able to build a bootstrapped, profitable, cash flowing business, um, you know, SaaS business in a super competitive space. Uh, we've taken very little outside investment. You know, we continue to build the business and, you know, survive and thrive each month just on the cash flow that we're able to, to produce. So it certainly had, you know, a lot of success over the last 10 years. But the reason I took it and the reason I was really interested in the, the role and the opportunity is, you know, when I look at um, just the task and productivity space, because yes, you know, so flow just for, just as a, you know, a little bit of a, um, an overview, uh, historically, you know, so we started out as a task, um, a task management software for individuals to be able to basically share tasks with friends, you know, with family members, uh, with people that we might be working with. And so it was just, and it started out initially as a, uh, you know, a consumer product, uh, focused on just being able to share tasks and it evolved over the years. And, you know, the current incarnation, incarnation of it is, uh, it's really focused on tasks and, and project management. Uh, but we're turning what we've been doing over the last year is taking a massive step back, uh, thinking about how do we build for, you know, what I describe as the next generation of work, meaning the influx of tools that we're seeing that are very different. Even just, you know, if you just look at just the thin slice of design tools and you think about, you know, all design used to be done in Adobe applications. Now, increasingly it, it happens across a number of different applications, but you've got things like Figma where the idea is there is no desktop app, you're working on it all online. And not only can you design inside there, but you can create reusable templates and, and tools that you can do. And it can be a repository for your design system. You know, and then you have tools like Sketch and, and Framer, dramatically different tools than used to exist previously. And I think in a lot of task management applications, those tools aren't super well integrated. And so we're turning it, turning it into is an all-in-one tool. And our customer, uh, our customer base is super diverse. So we have, you know, everything from healthcare to, um, you know, creative students and agencies to small to medium businesses to manufacturing companies. Um, and so the way that I really think about it is it's not, um, what it is, is it's a tool to help teams be able to get more out of the resources that they have. And what I mean by that is I think what, you know, uh, it took me a little while to realize this and see it this way, but I think what any, you know, product quote unquote productivity app is, is it's really a way to say, um, you know, I have these resources and I, uh, I, and I have, I want to head here. So I, you know, have X, I want to get to Z. 
um, what are the ways that I can kind of build a more fine-tuned machine out of the people that I have, out of the ideas that we have, the processes that we have, how, do we, how are we able to get more output? And I think when you think about it that way, you think about it a little bit differently. And so what um, the opportunity that I saw was to come into a space that I think generally when I look at project management or just productivity software today, I think it's super uninspiring. And I think something that we're seeing happening um, across the two, across the board with, you know, quote unquote business tools is that people are just, they're tired of they're, they're spending huge portions of their day in this tool, right. the tool they frequently find uninspiring, boring, frustrating. Um, the tools aren't really built. It's more, they're, they're built in a very company centric way. So, you know, Dropbox builds one version of Dropbox and everyone uses the same version of Dropbox and they have features you may or may not use, but it's a pretty narrow uh, experience. And so what I saw was, you know, a space that looked like you could come in and look at it very differently. You could have a very different approach to how you think about the product. You could have a very different approach to how you think about marketing it and, you know, messaging it to, um, to customers and to consumers. And so that's really the, the kind of um, the piece that we've been working on for the last year is, okay, well, how do we take this maybe inkling of an idea and flesh it into something that is super appealing? And just to put a point on it, the way that, you know, the, there's a few ways that we're thinking about it very differently, but I think one is we've put a huge, uh, we've put huge emphasis on making a tool that people will actually love working in. And there's a bunch of, you know, I could talk about that for quite a while, but I think that's one angle that we already, you know, we, when we uh, pull our customers, when we do a net promoter score, um, survey to customers, the customers today that give us 10 out of 10 every single time, the okay. thing that they always say is some equivalent of you're the Apple in the productivity software space, or you're the, I've tried other tools. They're all either, they're not powerful enough or they're way too powerful to the point that they're just kind of stupid. Like, I don't, I don't understand why I should be spending this much time in it. And I don't think I'm getting out what they're thinking I'm getting out of it as well as I just, you know, I just hate like these other tools. I just really hate uh, using them. And I think one thing I heard recently from a team that uh, stood out was <laughs> they said, you know, today we use Asana and when we go into Asana, it just makes us feel like accountants. Like we just feel like we're in there pushing things around, uh, doing stuff that doesn't really matter. And it's just not an inspiring, like, I, I feel like I use that tool. And at the end of it, I feel drained. I don't feel right. like I've like, I've gotten clarity. I've gotten focus. It's helped me get closer to my goals. Um, and so I've just put a huge amount of emphasis on user experience, a huge amount of emphasis on personalization, uh, meaning aesthetic personalization, um, and we've put a lot of experience on as well on just what we can do uniquely well. And, and what that is, is uh, fewer features that are much better designed than the competition and trying to create a tool that is uh, as lightweight as possible so that the goal is that you're, you're able to, you know, like if it was a lever or a wedge, you're able to get a huge amount of leverage by using this tool, but it doesn't require you to put in an insane amount of time. Um, and I can go, I mean, all that's maybe a little, uh, a little vague and high level, but I'm just trying to keep it succinct. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, along with Flo, you've also been a very active angel investor. You've mentioned more than, more than 60, 60 companies, uh, uh, I mean, companies like, you know, uh, Kodak, Superhuman. Um, so, uh, you know, does it really help to, uh, uh, be a good operator when you're also investing, uh, alongside with, uh, your day job? I think it, um, I think it's made a massive difference. So for me, you know, my kind of experiences, um, 
I've just always been fascinated by businesses, what it takes to build an incredible business, how you do that. And also just, um, investing at large. And I get the way that I think about it is, um, and it maybe is a little hokey, but what I find perpetually fascinating about businesses is, uh, if you can, uh, you know, creating a successful business, what a successful business really is, is it's almost like you've been able to achieve this kind of alchemic magical effect where your inputs are a portion or a small fraction of your outputs, meaning, you know, what it takes to build something, uh, is dramatically less than, than what you're able to sell it for. And just that in and of itself is fascinating. It's almost like you've been able to pull off this magic trick. Um, and I think Apple does this uniquely well where, you know, every single year it feels like the prices of their products continue to go up. Um, and they, yet they're remarkably profitable. You know, if you go and you look at their, uh, at their financials, um, they're, it's not like that MacBook is, you know, takes 80 to 90% of what you pay for it to build it. It doesn't. And so what they are able to achieve is this effect of, wow, this is an incredible product. It's worth this. I'm willing to pay this. And yet their inputs in order to build this are substantially less than that. And I just find that fascinating. How do you do that in different spaces? How do you do that as a consumer business? How do you do that as a business tool? And then investing, I've just always seen it as um, like a masterclass in decision-making. And I think, you know, if you're an investor, if you just find yourself attracted to it, uh, I think a lot of what we're attracted by is, you know, the way people analyze things, the way people think about things differently, because, you know, I think uh, like one of the simplest but most powerful statements you can say about investing is, you know, if you want, uh, if you want average results, you can just go ahead and index, you know, you can average into the market. Um, there are a number of ways to do that now. It's easier than ever, but if you want truly remarkable results, you have to do something very different. And I think when you start from that, uh, and that notion that to achieve outsized returns or, you know, and every investor's goal is the same, which is, uh, you want to, you know, uh, achieve returns that are bigger and better or, and different than, uh, than the market. Um, and yet a very small percentage of people are able to do that. And so I think what, um, you know, what you quickly pick up on is, uh, you know, the sorts of companies you're attracted to, the sorts of investors you're attracted to. And really what I think I learned from reading, you know, annual reports from listening to, um, you know, prominent investors, investors I really respect, um, is just the way that they think about things. And, you know, if, if to go back again to Berkshire Hathaway, if you look at someone like, um, you know, Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett, they have massive fan bases and massive followings. And I think if you were to ask all of them what they're attracted by, they'd have different answers, but generally it's all going to boil down to, they seem incredibly smart and wise. Uh, They have a very unique way of looking at the world and thinking about the world. And because of that, they're able to just get different results. Um, And so what I've, uh, you know, that's been my background in investing. And so what, uh, before I became, you know, CEO of Flow, uh, which is my first experience really leading a team, leading a business, you know, previous to that, I've been a leader in businesses. Um, You know, I'd been on management team, leadership teams, uh, but it's very different when you're the, um, yeah, when you're the one kind of calling the shots. (laughs) Um, And previous to that experience, I just think I had a very, um, I don't know if I'd call it superficial. I don't really know what the right word, but I didn't appreciate the depth and the nuance of really what it meant to be an operator, what it felt like, what it felt like to try to 
um, you know, set a big, bold vision for your team and get them to be able to hit deadlines and achieve that. What it felt like to make difficult decisions in a business, what it felt like to, you know, for us each month to look at and understand what we're going to bring in, how much we're going to spend, how should we allocate that remaining capital and even just the strategic trade-offs. But I think one of the things that I just had no real appreciation for was how hard it was to be an entrepreneur and, a, and an operator. And so I think the biggest benefit I've gotten is just, I don't think, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have thought this previously to becoming an operator, but now I honestly don't think anyone should be an investor, uh, at least in early stage, you know, venture backed companies, unless they've had experience as an operator, because one, you're not able to be a true resource to that founder, that CEO. Uh, but you're also, you just don't appreciate with full depth and dimensionality, what that role entails and what it requires. And that, you know, as an example of this, like I, uh, one of my, I th would say in the first month of, you know, leading flow, right. I immediately had this realization of, wow, uh, you know, before this job, I thought this was valuable. And an example that was, you know, I've advised many companies have been investor in many companies before that. Um, and you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, I can, uh, I can help the founder by, you know, kind of sending them competitive intelligence. So if I come across something that seems interesting or similar to what they're doing or similar to something they want to do, I'll kind of throw out a few, a few ideas. And, you know, in my mind, that was a way that I could be helpful and provide feedback. And once I got into the role, I was like, wow, nothing could be less helpful <laughs> because <laughs> Uh, as a founder, you are, you have no, there's no, it had none of that, none of the challenges in that role is a lack of ideas. It is how do you, how are you able to execute this idea, this vision that you have? And how do you, you know, what's that journey look like? How do you course correct every single day to get there? How do you make big, bold strategic calls to, you know, have see like step function changes in your, in your progress. And so really, you know, what I quickly realized is, I think the best thing you can do for a founder is to just be a, uh, a helpful, supportive, but um, like sparring partner on, you know, helping them, help them think through the difficult things that they're struggling with in the business or ask them what's something that you would like to do, say in the next six, nine, 12 months that right now is just an inkling, but you, you just know that there's something in this idea that's interesting. Let's talk about that. Let's figure out what is that. Let's, let me help you flesh that out. Let me challenge that thinking. And so I think, um, you know, as an operator, you just, you really appreciate because um, the role is really isolating in a lot of ways. And uh, there's again, no lack of ideas and no lack of information and data on competitors and what other people are doing. You just really want help that, you know, I'm one brain and I have to work on these super high level, very different problems than what my team is working on. You really want help there. And so I think that was one of the biggest uh, realizations I had. And I think that, again, just to put a, you know, a point on it, um, it's it already made me a dramatically better investor. And it's made me, I think, uh, truly be able to uh, be helpful in a real sense to entrepreneurs and not in a superficial kind of uh, all too common VC sense. <laughs> Interesting. You know, the, the lot of operators who say that, you know, they become better investor investors feel that, you know, once they've uh, worked on a business, they, they understand the founders. So it's a very interesting uh, take. Uh, but, you know, you're also a general partner at Black Letter. Uh, so, you know, how was the transition from being an angel investor to uh, do institutional investments? And is Black Letter a, a micro fund or an angel syndicate? 
Yeah, so Blackletter is really, um, <laughs> it's primarily my own capital. And it's only been oh, in the okay. last few years that I've started to uh, open it up to like-minded investors. Um, and the thought process there is really, um, so, you know, first and foremost, I just wanted to start after, especially after my experience at Square, you know, I left that role um, with, you know, like, a different level of resources, financial resources than I entered that role. And so I was at a, just at a different phase um, because, you know, I'd been with that company early on. I was there through the IPO. I got to be there on the New York Stock Exchange, the day that we nice. IPO'd. I feel like I got to just have the kind of full, like uh, Goldilocks fairy tale <laughs> kind right. of startup experience. And, uh, you know, I've, I've really seen, yeah, my experience after that has just made me very aware that that is not the average experience and that the average experience for startup employees or just people, you know, working at startups is very different from that. So I was very fortunate just in the experience I was able to have at Square. But coming out of that, I kind of felt two things. One, I, at least for a period of time, I did not want to go in and dive in and do the same thing. I didn't want to go and find another startup and, and uh, you know, do the kind of four or five year um, like I really want to make an impact here experience. I really felt like what I needed was to kind of loosen up, shake off, uh, you know, shake off, um, this kind of soup wearing this one hat, having this one perspective on things and just really, um, you know, I think something that's been played a big role in my life that I've always tried to optimize for in as intelligent way as possible is just serendipity. And what I mean by that is I, you know, I think, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. I think some people think that, um, you know, there's a lot of benefit to just being focused on one thing and being super, you know, uh, just putting all of your eggs in that basket. And sometimes it's out of love uh, for this thing, but I think a lot of times it's more out of fear. Like if I'm not the best at this one thing, then, um, you know, I don't, uh, I just don't know. I'm afraid. I don't know if I'm going to be able to be good at it. I don't know if I'm, you know, going to be able to have the career that I want. And for me, I've definitely been on the other end of the spectrum where I want to be good at a few things. I want to be really, really, really good at the things that I care about, but I want to weave together uh, my own ideas via these very different spheres. And, you know, like even the fact that today I still care deeply about design, I still do design work on a regular basis. You know, I'm an investor uh, with my own capital as well as an advisor to venture capital funds like Designer Fund and Notation Capital and Combine. Um, I'm an advisor to companies and, um, you know, and then I'm now I'm also an operator at a company and from all of those things, even, you know, I think most people from the outside looking in just think that like, what is going on? How do these things connect? How, like, can you be a good, uh, designer and at the same time be a good, you know, operator and an investor. And what I get out of it is, um, you know, and what's like all of those things give me energy. I'm deeply fascinated by all of those things. And I, I think it's made me just see the world in a very different way to be able to take these different ideas, these different points of view, these different kind of like hats and ways of looking at the world and weave them together. Um, and so with black letter, it was really started out as, um, you know, I left square. I wanted to start investing in team. Like I loved the experience of being at a startup, but I didn't want to do it just on, and go all in on one startup again. And so that has become, you know, the, uh, it's 
primarily basically like a fa family office venture capital fund. I do okay. advising. Uh, I've now advised something like I think 20 plus um, companies as well as funds. You know, I'm an investor in over a hundred companies today. Uh, you know, and yeah, an advisor in venture capital funds. And, uh, and the way that I looked at it was, you know, and building it was really a couple fold. It was, I felt like I had a unique skill set uh, that I could go to the market with and, and help companies in a really different way, uh, both as an advisor and as an investor. I, again, I've always just really loved business and really loved investing. And so it was a way for me to put some skin in the game and, um, you know, kind of invest my way in the companies that I thought would make a difference and evolve that strategy over time and see how that played out. Um, and then, you know, recently in the last two years, um, I've started syndicating the investments, uh, that I make on AngelList. And for me, what that really is, is a, um, I think AngelList is an incredible platform. I think it's an incredible platform because it opens up an asset class that is incredibly difficult to access. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have any experience in the venture capital space, you really quickly learn that <laughs> like one, it's super small. There's very, yeah. there's actually very few people that are there and you'll run into the same people again and again and again. But two, you know, one of the best ways that it's a little tongue in cheek, but one of the best ways I've heard that described is it's an access class and not an asset class. And you know, what that means is in order to like, you may care about these companies, you may have money you're willing to invest. Good luck trying to find a way to actually invest in high quality tech companies. And to, traditionally the way that's worked is unless you have literally multiple millions millions of dollars and you can go to, um, you know, you can basically go to uh, new venture capital firms or try to go and twist the arm of a partner at, you know, a, a, like a Sequoia or an A16Z. And the majority of these firms now just manage institutional capital. And so if you're a smart, uh, you know, motivated, driven, uh, just, you know, uh, a person, but you want to invest, it's really difficult to get access to it. And so I think AngelList has been great for that. But one thing that I saw that irritated me uh, a lot was I just had a very hard time finding syndicates that I felt like approached it the right way. And what I meant by that is I think the majority of syndicates, when you look at the deals they syndicate, they, uh, it's generally all about quantity and not about quality. Uh, and so I think you see a lot of syndicates that, um, it's almost like a, if we just throw 50 darts at the wall, we're going to get a few. And there is, you know, there's like a portion of that that's true, but I think that, uh, the best investors just, again, have a very high bar for due diligence, a very high bar for the companies that they invest in. And I, I didn't see that generally in angel syndicates, but the other thing was a little bit more, um, foundational. And that was the majority of syndicates. I didn't feel like they had skin in the game. And so what I meant by that is, um, you know, and just, I guess to touch on that for a second, Nassim Taleb's written a great book about this written uh, recently called skin in the game. Um, but the concept is super simple and it goes back to just the power of incentives. And one thing that you find, uh, and this, you know, I learned from just, uh, studying, great investors studying great investment firms. But what you really quickly find is the best ones, they never say, hey, we have these ideas. Now give us your capital and we're going to go execute it. The best ones say, we're investing out of deeply held values. All, almost all of our money or the majority of our money is invested in these strategies. And we want to have find other similar like-minded investors that want to invest this way. And I think that's the best way to invest because you know that the 
the, the people that are there that are making those decisions have as much to lose as you do or more in a lot of cases. And I think that that just naturally aligns incentives and raises the bar. And so what I saw in AngelList, which is still super common, and I don't think, uh, I don't think it's positive, is syndicates where someone would say, hey, I'm raising $250,000 and I'm investing $1,000. And I would just, I would just look at that. And, and, uh, to me, I was like, okay, yes, I, I can see that you're doing a lot of work here. You got this deal, you know, you negotiated the terms potentially, you now have to go out and find these investors. Like I'm not trying to downplay the amount of work that's involved in finding great companies and, and, uh, you know, getting into those deals. But I also want to see, you know, at the very least, say 10% of capital coming from the GP. And that just wasn't common. And so what, the reason I really wanted to found Black Letter is to create the syndicate that I felt like I could not find. And so the ways that we're different is we focus exclusively on deal quality, not on quantity. So, so far we've shared three deals um, that have all been, uh, had tremendous success <laughs> since we uh, invested in those. Um, I, you know, spend a tremendous amount of time due diligencing those deals. Uh, and then I, when I syndicate the deals, I always invest at least 10%, at least 10% of what I'm raising is my own capital. And for whatever reason, that is not something that I've been able to see anywhere else on AngelList. Um, so that's a little bit of the story of what, <laughs> why I've started syndicating it and, and what we try to do differently with that syndicate on AngelList. No, uh, so that's that's an interesting insight. You know, ten percent of the total funds being raised. But uh, you know, how how do you? Uh, one is you know, are you uh, sector agnostic? And second is you know, what? How do you make a decision? You know, somewhere I read that you know VCs look at uh, you know rejecting ninety nine percent of the deals because you know one is uh, a very few number of. Uh, you know, startups get a series A or, you know, uh, are able to scale up. So, uh, so one is, are you sector agnostic uh, as black led sector agnostic and what is the decision process? Or do you have any favorite, uh, you know, sectors which you like to invest into? Yeah. So we're, uh, we're definitely sector agnostic. And the way that I think about that is um, I don't, you know, um, I don't disagree with people uh, or investors or investment firms that are thesis driven. And, you know, typically what that means is uh, the way that process starts is someone says, uh, here's how I see the world unfolding over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, and now I'm going to go and invest in things that align with this strategy. I think that works really well in, uh, you know, in public equity markets. So a good example of that is, you know, I'm a big fan of a firm called ARK Invest. Um, and I would describe them as a thesis driven firm. And they have a handful of mutual funds that are also available as ETFs. And they're extremely focused on disruptive technology. And I just love their perspective. But I think their approach to being thesis driven works because they are able to, you know, just look at a much smaller subset of companies, which are companies that have already had, you know, enormous success to be able to get to the point to be a public equity. Um, you have a lot more information to be able to assess these companies if they're, once they're public. Um, you know, you can look at all of someone's competitors' financials. You can look at all the annual reports and the, uh, you know, shareholder letters from all the companies. It's just very different. And I think that that works. Uh, but for me, for whatever reason, um, I just, that's just not how my brain works, uh, when I'm thinking about kind of early stage companies. And what I really mean by that is, um, 
when I, when I see investors, when I hear investors that are thesis driven, it just feels to me like it's a constant case of kind of confirmation bias. Cause what you're really looking for is saying, this is how I think the world's going to play out. Then you're basically going and saying, I've got to look for companies that fit this mold that snap into this narrative. And typically thesis driven firms, you know, they're thesis driven for multiple funds or at least one fund, which means I'm going to have an idea. And then over the next four, eight, 12 years over say, you know, two to three funds, I'm going to invest along this thesis and that can work. But what I find, I just think the dynamics um, are very different at the early stage. And what I think matters more than anything is the entrepreneur. It all has to start, uh, at least, you know, it does for me with the person leading the business. Um, you know, do I think they have the qualities? Do I think they have the ability? Do I think they have the experience to be able to build a truly remarkable, you know, uh, large company? Um, do I think they have a differentiated strategy in a way of, uh, you know, looking at the world? And do I think they're going to be able to execute that? And, you know, I think for me, that's just always come from, I think incredible entrepreneurs, they're always crazy outliers. They have very different points of view. They have a very different makeup, a very different background. And that is, it is inherently in them. You know, it's like almost like their, their DNA uh, that uh, is what you see in the business multiple years later. You know, and there are examples like that. I think that was my experience at Square with Jack Dorsey. Like Square is Square because of Jack. Yeah. Um, you know, Twitter is Twitter. I think it's, they've had a handful of leaders, but it's because of Jack. You know, I think Tesla is Tesla because of Elon. And so I think all, um, maybe not all, but I think a lot of the best businesses are just, they're iconoclastic because the person leading them is iconoclastic. So that's the approach I've taken. And so, you know, to give you an example, we've invested in uh, one fintech company, which is a competitor to Robinhood um, that was called Matador and is now called uh, Public. And you can uh, find them at public.com. Um, so that's a fintech company that does, um, you know, does like fractional shares and, and commission-free um, trading, but they have a super different approach um, to it, which is what really attracted me to it as well as the, the uh, founders and uh, the team there. We also invested in a uh, company that couldn't be <laughs> more different called Money Kids, uh, which builds uh, toys. It's basically a subscription, to uh, it's uh, a subscription package for early, uh, early kids. So as in, you know, uh, for background, I've got a two-year-old at home. Um, and what you really see is, you know, and you, you don't really know this before you become a parent, but for those first, you know, handful of years, you are the one, uh, whether you know it or not, uh, you know, kind of helping that kid develop their brain, um, learn how to use their motor skills, learn how to think about things. And uh, that doesn't, you know, it takes a lot of years until you can do that by talking to a kid or by reading them a book um, or by being able to have discussions. And so in all those early years, kids learn just by experience. And the best way, you know, they learn is by play. And so Monty, uh, Monty Kids' whole idea is it's Montessori based. So it's based on real science and, and a real history of incredible education. Um, and they make just incredible naturally made toys for kids that stimulate the brain that help develop all the right skills. And so, uh, what they sell is basically a, a, a subscription you can buy into as soon as your kid is, you know, is basically born and can help fill in the gaps in those early years to help develop their brain. And then the, the last one we've done recently, um, is a company called Flight that I actually invested in, I think two plus or three plus years back at this point initially. And what they've been building is, um, 
it's it's a little hard to describe. It's kind of like um, I think if Evernote were starting, um, you know, at this period in time, I think it would it would look and feel a lot like this product. But it's basically a uh, it's for taking notes. It's kind of like if you were to imagine Notes app on your phone meets Pinterest right. uh, meets the ability to like share and post the the collections and curations that you're able to do online. That's what Flight is building, and so all those are very different. But what really mattered is do I believe in the business they're building and in the strategy that they're taking? Do I believe in the person running the business? And there's a super, super high bar there. I think the highest bar has to be applied to that entrepreneur because strategies can change, but the person running the business is unlikely to change. Um, and they're going to be, it's, you know, create the failure modes that are there or create the, the feedback loops that, that lead to success. Um, so sector agnostic focused primarily on, on the entrepreneurs and then just trying to find these remarkable differentiated com- ideas and, uh, paths that we think can, can, uh, you know, have a, have a very large upside and potentially limited downside. Interesting. And, and how do you source, uh, deal flows for, for, for black Lido, uh, ventures? I, so, um, the, it's a, it's a great question. Again, there's like, I don't think there's any right way to source, uh, deals. Um, you know, it certainly helps. I get like what I focused on that's made the biggest difference is just, um, I think it helps if you are an operator yourself. So it's definitely helped, um, you know, being the CEO flow and being in a role that I think when you reach out to, to other CEOs and you reach out to entrepreneurs, I think there's just a different level of, rapport if you're uh, not just an investor, but if you're also an operator that would be interested in investing in their business. I think that's kind of the highest compliment you can pay an entrepreneur is to say, hey, I'm another entrepreneur. I really like what you're building. If you're ever raising a round, I'd love to, um, you know, I'd love to talk. I'd love to support you and, and um, you know, uh, work with you to, to help build this thing that you're trying to build in the world. Um, so, you know, network definitely helps. Um, and that is where I think it still is a little bit of an access class. If you're going to be, um, an investor of your own capital, but especially of your capital and other people's capital, um, you know, having a network is, is, um, it's crazy important. And I think the way that the way, the right way to think about that is not to say, I'm going to send a bunch of cold emails. I'm just going to take a bunch of people to coffee. No, I think what really works in the Silicon Valley, um, you know, spaces, people, again, it's like, it's a tribe. It's not that big. And so what really helps is, is, you know, having a background of I've worked at this company, I've done this, I've, you know, been able to be an investor in this company. I've been an advisor here. And if you're, you know, hardworking enough, lucky enough, um, and you know, you build a good reputation over time, you start to accumulate this advantage of being able to reach out to entrepreneurs. And, and really, I think that's, what it is, is it's not so much being aware of companies. I think that is relatively easy. You could just be on product hunt or you can, um, you know, look at what companies are demoing at YC. I think what really matters is, um, will someone, will you be able to break through and get someone to listen to what you have to say, to be open, to have you on as an investor? And will you be able to, you know, I like, get good, get good terms and be able to invest in a way that, that makes sense. And I think doing that, that's where I think VC is a little bit of a razor's edge. Cause, um, you know, I, I know people in the space that definitely, you know, I think there's no other way to describe them than aggressive where, you know, they're, 
yes, they're looking for companies, but then they're going and they're trying to extract as much terms as possible. They're trying to like get as much advantage in the deal on their side. And I think that's one way of approaching it. And inherently there's nothing right or wrong about that. But the, you know, the way that I think about it and the, just the, the rule that I try to follow is um, I try to, again, pick great entrepreneurs, make sure that it's a product. And you know, this is the other thing that I feel really fortunate about investing my own capital and, and having that be the basis of the, um, of the syndicate is, uh, you know, I'm not going to invest in any companies that I wouldn't be a customer of. I'm not going to invest in any companies that I don't deeply believe in what they're building. Cause uh, not only, you know, that's, what's going to draw me into it, but I'm then going to put capital like my own super precious capital behind this, this, um, this company. And so, um, you know, those are, those are some of the, the criteria. And so the way I just try to approach it is I just want to, you know, I have, things that I'll negotiate for that I just think are fair. So some examples of that are um, something like pro rata rights, which basically means if I invest now in the business, I want the ability to be able to invest in your next round and at least maintain my ownership. I think that, uh, you know, if you can explain that to a founder, and I think one thing that's fascinating is, you know, a lot of uh, you know, being able to negotiate an investment and syndicate a deal is being able to explain things like founders in a, uh, you know, in a super direct but relatable way. And so, you know, the way that I try to negotiate with, with founders once I found one I'm interested in is just to say, I don't negotiate on a lot, but here are a couple things I care, I care about. I care about information rights and here's why. I care about pro rata rights and here's why. And I, you know, and then here's these other kind of softer, more qualitative uh, criteria. Like I wanna make sure that there's nothing weird or malicious in the terms. I generally wanna make sure that what we're receiving rights wise is in line with other investors. And so, you know, you can ask to, um, you can ask to, you know, see all the side letters and entrepreneurs had with other investors to know what other rights people have negotiated. And I just try to come up with a deal that's a win for everybody, but, un but comes from the basis of I'm investing my capital in a business that's very early stage that could be worth something, but, you know, statistically more often than not will not be worth something. So here's what I want just as like simple common sense uh, protections uh, that are all aligned. And so that's, I guess this last thing I would say is, you know, we're kind of uh, negotiating terms with an entrepreneur and, and negotiating a deal that will syndicate. It's all just alignment of incentives. And I think if you approach it that way and you're able to speak just in a super plain way about like, here's what I'm looking for. Here's why it matters to me. Here's why I think it's, uh, you know, it makes sense. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very easy for, for someone else to get on the same page with you and understand that, oh yeah, okay, you're coming at it, uh, you know, from a super level-headed perspective, because again, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs deal with a wide range of investors. Um, and, you know, I want to continue to build a long-term advantage. So I want to do deals today that'll get me better deals tomorrow. I want to work with entrepreneurs in a way that will make them want to recommend me to other entrepreneurs, either as an investor, as, a, as an advisor, or just someone that can be helpful uh, or someone that can help them think about things in a different way. Right. And, and, and as your, uh, you know, long-term goal to be, uh, to be a full-time investor or do you want to be an operator and invest on, uh, on, on the side? Yeah, I don't, I guess I don't think about it on this as being on the side. I just think about it as these are a collection of things that uh, I love, I'm fascinated by, and I would love to continue getting better at over the course of my life. You know, and so my hope is really, because um, I don't, you know, again, uh, I 
think I think about things a little bit more three-dimensionally than I think uh, a lot of people do. And so even something like black letter, that's one, you know, some people talk about like sleeves of an investment or sleeves of a portfolio. That's one sleeve of my portfolio. Meaning, yes, I do, I do invest in early stage companies, but I also have public equity portfolios um, that I invest in. And none of that is, um, it's all done in a way that understands that uh, I don't have 40 hours per week uh, to be able to dedicate to these things. But these are things that I enjoy. These are things that I see as a reciprocal feedback loop that, you know, being in, being a better investor will make me a better CEO. Uh, being a better investor will make me a better builder of businesses and, and vice versa. And so, yeah, I don't, I, you know, um, I don't have a strong point of view about whether I'll be a full-time investor in the future. Um, but I'm right now I'm really enjoying, uh, and I would like to continue being both an operator and an investor. Um, and okay. I see those kind of reciprocal things. Interesting. And, uh, you know, we've been recording this uh, podcast in the, in the month of March when uh, we had the COVID uh, coronavirus, uh, you know, lockdowns across the world. Uh, what advice would you give to founders, you know, looking to raise funds or they're looking to, uh, to grow the businesses? You know, what, what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of months for, for early stage founders? Yeah, it's a really difficult, you unique time uh, in history that we're in at the moment uh, for a bunch of reasons. And I think generally, you know, my advice would be um, if you were, if you are in a, you know, if you're a company that already has some capital and you maybe were thinking about raising a follow-on round, I think if you can wait, you should absolutely wait. I think if you're an early stage founder that wants to go out and raise seed capital, if you can wait, I think you should wait. Um, you know, I think we're in a period where really what's going to, you know, there's diff I guess the way to think about it is, you know, there are periods where raising capital is going to be easier and where it's going to be harder. And there are periods where raising capital means you're going to have to give more, uh, more ownership, you know, uh, more equity, um, more rights. Um, and there are periods of time where you're not going to have to be in that position. And I think right now the power balance is such that all the power uh, is in the hands of, you know, venture capitalists. And that's not bad or good. If you work with good venture capitalists, you, you know, and you have someone that you trust that can get a deal done, there's no reason you shouldn't go do that now. You know, and I certainly know uh, multiple really great founders that are out, uh, you know, at some stage of fundraising right now. And if, you know, if you have a great high quality business, you probably won't have a bad time. But I would just say, I think the way to think about that this time right now is it's a time to just channel your, you know, your frustration, uh, your, your isolation potentially, if you're, um, you know, you're, you were used to working in an office and now you're working remotely. It's definitely a more stressful time, but I think this is a uniquely advantageous time to channel all of that into what you're building, um, and focus less ideally, like, if you have a business that's not profitable and is cash flowing, it's a great time to try to be in control of your own destiny. Really make sure that you're uh, cut any non-strategic, you know, costs, expenses in your business. Make sure that you've got the right team. Uh, you know, maybe narrow down the scope of what you want to build and just focus it in and sharpen it. Uh, but I think this is a time to be sharpening your skills, really putting in the work because I think right now a lot of people generally are um, one. I think. If you can launch something or if you have something, I think you've got a super receptive audience online. Everyone is, you know, Thank primarily you. not allowed to go outside, not allowed to socialize, not allowed to really interact with others. And so it's, I think it's a great time to be, uh, you know, shipping things for customers and shipping updates. Uh, and I think it's a great time to just focus on outworking and, um, 
you know, out, out maneuvering the, the competition. That's definitely what we're focused on doing at flow at the moment. Right. Uh, yeah. This is very helpful advice. And uh, I quickly want to do the top three. Uh, what's your favorite business book? Yeah, I don't have a favorite business book. I um, mean, I would just loosely reiterate, um, you know, uh, Naval Ravikant, I think has a, a really good take on that. You know, if you want to be a good uh, entrepreneur, if you want to be a good leader, you know, uh, but if you want to build it, you know, if you want to be good at building businesses, maybe the worst thing you can do is, is to read business books because business is not a singular skill. You don't get better at quote unquote business. Business is really a, um, it's a, you know, it's a skill stack. It's like negotiation, it's understanding pricing, it's understanding, you know, financial uh, kind of things like balance sheet and an income statement and, and uh, you know, accounting for your business. Part of it is strategy. And so I, um, I don't have one book, uh, but, you know, generally what I'm a fan of are just really good books uh, that are, I would say great encapsulations of bigger ideas or bigger things that you need to be good at, where you can read one book and just get much better at it. And some of those in my mind are, um, they're all books that a lot of people haven't, <laughs> haven't heard of. And that's generally the, the types of books that uh, really appeal to me. One that I love that I read a couple of years ago, that's all about pricing, which I think is something people put way too much emphasis and effort uh, into. And I think a lot of people just think about it very lazily where it's, uh, they don't think about pricing, uh, very strategically. They think about it, um, you know, I would say very bluntly. And so there's a book called Confessions of a Pricing Man, uh, that I would highly recommend. And really what uh, I took away from that book is, um, you know, it helps explain things like why does Amazon prime, why is that a subscription and why would you offer that and not just say lower prices on all of your goods and what does, you know, what are the benefits of giving someone a subscription? And it's very similar to, you know, Costco has a model. It's not too dissimilar. Um, but when you, you know, and so they have a case study in the book that talks about some, uh, so the, just to take a couple steps back, the book is written by um, a man who uh, owns and runs one of the largest pricing consultancies in the world. And even just that alone, knowing that there are businesses out there that do tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue doing nothing but helping companies like Porsche, um, you know, German uh, train companies uh, figure out the right way to price their product is fascinating. And what I love about the book is it, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, if you were to just say, you know, uh, if you were to go to an entrepreneur, say have a software product and say, how do you think about pricing? you know, I, I bet the conversation would be something like, oh, well, you know, I don't think we should do annual and we should just do monthly. And, uh, you know, I really want to like, I definitely want to do stuff with pricing psychology. So I want to make sure prices are, you know, 749 or 999. Um, and, you know, we're going to have two tiers of pricing. And I would say that is super, <laughs> just objectively a really bad way to think about it. And so what I think the book helps you understand is uh, take a few steps back what's the right model of pricing? Should it be something like a membership model? Should it be something like a subscription model? Uh, then how do you want to think about tiers? How should you think about it compared to your competitors? You know, how do you think about pricing psychology and how that plays in? So I think that's a really great book. Um, there's another one, I've, I'm going to blunder the title of it, but it's something like Double Your Profits in 90 Days, um, which I heard of initially, um, 
you know, I'm a fan of, again, I spent a lot of time studying investors. Uh, I'm a fan generally of what uh, 3G Capital out of Brazil has been able to do with companies like uh, Kraft Heinz and uh, Budweiser. Um, and this is a book that, it, you know, I, uh, this is all secondhand, so I don't know if this is true or not, but this is a book that supposedly they give out to the leadership teams and management teams of the businesses they acquire. And it's super controversial, even just the title, I think a lot of people would balk at, but even yeah. the things that are described in it, I think you'll, if you read it with an open mind, I think you come away with things that are really interesting. If you read it, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> in a judgmental place, I think you'll think that maybe a lot of what they recommend is, uh, a little overboard, but uh, basically what a book like that helps you understand is uh, what are the levers that you have in your business uh, that you can pull on to help uh, improve the financial performance of your company. And I think, you know, generally, like if we were talking two months ago, those skills probably wouldn't be super applicable. Everything was doing really well. You didn't have to be in a defensive mindset. It didn't really help you to be in a defensive mindset. You know, you just want to put all, all of your effort into growing and into, uh, you know, just ways to kind of propel your growth because things are generally going well. Now the world is super, super, super different. And a lot of businesses, whether they're mom or pop businesses or even venture capital backed businesses are, they, uh, they're realizing that they need to be good at, at understanding how to be defensive in their business. And a lot of people have given it zero effort and zero attention uh, ever. And so I think what a book like that does really well is it just helps you understand if you ever did need to get defensive in your business, what are some of those levers you can pull? And how could you potentially go into a business that is fine, but probably underperforming across a bunch of different dimensions? And how do you change the profile of that business? And so it's very tactics focused, but I think it's great. And just the last book I would give, which I've been reading recently. Um, and for me, a lot of what I try to do now is, um, you know, just build a discipline out of it where every day I, you know, well, this is the previous reality. Every day I would go out to lunch, try to take, you know, go somewhere where I could get food, but really just honestly read and, and uh, you know, be able to eat at, at the same time, uh, but put more attention on, on reading. Um, and I would just try to have a book that I could almost, it's almost like a voice in my life, an idea person in my life for a period of time. Um, you know, and, and to be able to go and just have this be something I can think on, come back to continue to refine and, and, uh, you know, get a little bit better at each day. And so the book's called the champion's mind. Um, and it's written by a sports psychologist who's worked with, you know, professional teams, Olympic athletes, entrepreneurs, you know, race car drivers, people who need to perform at their highest across a bunch of different dimensions. And what I love about the book is I've read similar books that are about, um, you know, kind of high performance or psychology focused and uh, with a performance bent. And a lot of them, I think are just really narrow. And what I love about this book is it truly is a representation of, uh, you know, this man's work. He's worked with people from, uh, you know, business leaders, um, you know, athletes. He's worked across a bunch of different spheres, even with the military. And so the book's just a really great, it, it just makes it so you don't have to read it linearly. Every single day you can open up the book, you can pick a chapter and you can find something that's interesting. Um, so I'd recommend all three of those. Uh, you know, nobody has uh, has referred these books. I'm going to I'm going to put that in the show notes and make sure that you know I read uh, all three of them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, if you could go back in time when you started your career, what is the one thing you would done differently, or uh, you know, uh, uh, or, or done anything you know uh, in in a different way? Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of it, honestly, is I think when at least for me, my experience. 
you know, throughout the course of my career, I feel like uh, fear has played less and less of a role. And what I mean by that is, it, you know, at least for me, I came from a, uh, you know, came from a smallish town. A lot of people I know, I uh, never ended up leaving that town or never ended up getting far away from it. Uh, you know, I don't have a college degree. I'm a self-taught designer. Um, and, you know, my career, uh, you know, really at every stage of it so far has just been unconventional. And I think initially in my career, I was, uh, you know, worried about that from every possible angle. I was worried about, uh, you know, uh, why don't I have a college degree? Am I going to get older and suddenly feel like I really should have had a college degree? Would it be better if I had a college degree? Um, you know, and I was just, I think I was just always second guessing myself. And so if I could go back and just give myself one piece of advice, I think it would be, um, like, listen to your passions and don't, uh, you know, like, listen to your passions and give into them and kind of, um, you know, submit yourself to them. Uh, and, you know, and so I think what that meant for me is like, I think early on, I just had like, well, why would I spend time reading an investing book? Well, you know, don't worry about it early on. Like, if you love it, there's a reason that you love it. And it means that you're just the way your brain is set up, you're predisposed to that, or you just love this thing. And I think for me, all of the good things in my life have come from just really paying attention to things that don't just like interest me on the superficial level, but are things that I can throw myself into for years and decades at a time and get better and better and better at. Um, and so I just tell myself, just, you know, just do that. Don't worry about how you're going to use these skills in the future. Just follow your passion, follow your interests and, you know, give into those things. And then I think another would just be to tell myself to not overthink things because, you know, a lot of, um, like, you know, I distinctively remember I got to Apple very early on in my career. Like for, for me, I remember when I got the initial email from a recruiter at Apple, you know, I'm early twenties, like something like say 22. Um, I remember when I got it, I was initially like, this has to be a joke email. <laughs> like how, <laughs> this can't be a, a real email. And so I, you know, checked the domain name, made sure it was actually from apple.com and not some weird one, you know, looked up the person on, on LinkedIn and, and on the internet. And, um, you know, and so I was super fortunate to get to work at Apple early on in my career. And I hit a period three years in at Apple where I just felt like um, I kind of had it down and not in a cocky way. But, you know, I felt like, I think for me, one of the things that's paid me the most rewards over time is just always focusing on being uncomfortable and making sure that I'm on some sort of a growth curve. And so for me, you know, for whatever reason, anytime I feel like I've gotten comfortable some, somewhere or comfortable with some skill set, I'm kind of disinterested in it. And that happened to me at Apple. And, and, you know, Apple is a remarkable company, but it's also very hierarchical. Um, and once you learn how to think and work and, you know, for me, design in the Apple aesthetic, you have it down. And yes, it can be an immensely rewarding place to work for year after year after year. But for me, I just got to a point where I feel like I had kind of, I had the formula figured out for how to design and, and do well at Apple. And it just got a little bit, uh, it just got less interesting to me. And so I felt like, you know, I had this, I specifically remember this moment where I had this moment of clarity and I, you know, kind of projected forward in the future and thought about what it would be like to be, you know, the age I am now and still be working at Apple. And that just was not appealing to me. And so I said, okay, if I don't want to be the person that's been at Apple for 10 years then I need to go do something else. And what would I go and do? That ultimately led me to find Square. And Square at that time was super small company, 
Uh, this was a point in time at Silicon Valley that, you know, today the majority of the best people I know are all working at early stage companies. That was not true <laughs> in, the early 2000, in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, uh, if you were working at a tech company, you know, you were marginalized. There wasn't the respect and the admiration for those companies as there is today. Right. And so I remember, you know, like going and meeting the team at Square, being so impressed with Jack, being so impressed by the people that were there and just feeling like I loved what they were doing. I, you know, I didn't know if they were going to be successful. I thought they were going about it the right way, but I just loved what they were doing. And so I remember when I made the decision to, to join Square and I went back and told my team at Apple. And everyone was, you know, couldn't have been nicer uh, <laughs> about, you know, they said wonderful things about uh, what it was like to work together. They wished me the best of luck, but I could read in between the lines and see the expressions on people's faces. And, you know, generally it was, what are you doing? Like no one leaves Apple to go and work for a no name start, startup like Square. Right. And so that was, you know, like it didn't make sense to a lot of people, but it made a lot of sense to me. And so again, that was me just like focusing on being uncomfortable so that I knew I was always getting better at something and always challenging myself and knowing that I was never going to be able to tell what good was going to come out of that, but some, some amazing things were going to come out of that. And then the second was just making sure I was always following my passions. Um, those have been huge for me. Interesting. And uh, do you have any favorite online tool other than flow? Uh, it's a great question. Let me, Look at my phone real quick. Um, the, the, I mean, the tools that I use most heavily every single day are, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Headspace and 10% for meditation and I toggle back and forth between those. I also recently found an app called brain.fm that I love. Um, you know, like I think a lot of us, um, you know, want to listen to something or be, or just not sit in silence <laughs> while right. we're working is maybe the best way to, to say it. And, um, you know, we all have music that we listen to, but, uh, for me, I, I definitely like, I need to get into the groove, uh, to be able to do deep work. So if I want to do something for multiple hours, I want that to fly by. I just want to kind of get into the zone. It, you know, it, I don't know, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but what brain FM is, it's basically you can turn on, uh, you know, sound and they have these really wonderful kind of, it's like a mix between quiet ambient beats and a little bit of, of music, but all of it's science backed. And it's an app that's specifically meant for you to listen to when you want to get into, you know, if you just want to relax and unwind at the end of the day, if you want to get into a creative, uh, you know, 90 minute session or a deep work, 30 minute session, they have all these things you can do. So I'm a big fan of um, brain.fm and I don't think it's super well known. And then the other ones, um, you know, I think, um, I use Twitter a lot. And, uh, I think one of the ones I use that, um, I don't know, I don't know if it gets much love or a lot of love, but I care a lot, um, just about having, you know, and this goes back to kind of what I'm trying to build at flow. I just, I love well-crafted tools that are opinionated. And I think that there's way too few of those. And what I mean by that is I think it's super easy to just be like, I'm going to make another notes app and just kind of generally do what everybody else does. I think it's very hard to say, I'm going to build a notes app and I am going to be good at this. I really don't want to do this. I'm going to really over-index on this. And it just, I think what comes out the other end when someone takes a really opinionated 
like I'm scratching my own itch version to creating a product is there's just something that's magical about that because it's not watered down, it's take it or leave it. And I think especially today that's, you know, becoming more and more attractive, but at least that's what I find myself gravitated towards. And there's a writing app called IA Writer that's super opinionated. They, um, you know, they've created their own custom typefaces that are used in the app. Uh, there's very little Chrome. So when you're writing, you know, it's basically in my version of it, I'd have it in the dark mode. So it's just a, you know, black screen and uh, really beautiful, easy to read text that's on top of it. And I just love using it. Um, so it's not for everyone, but I think, you know, a tool like that, I use uh, just because I, for me, it just helps me. Um, it, it's, I, I enjoy writing in it, which just naturally means I'm like spending more time there. I'm polishing my thoughts more. And uh, at least in the, you know, this recent phase of life, a lot more of the high impact work that I do is writing, whether it's, you know, writing a story around a feature that we're building, writing a narrative around how I want to talk about this next version of our product. Um, and so, you know, having a good writing tool, I think is instrumental and I'm a big fan of IA writer. Yeah. It's called AI writer, is it? IA writer. IA. Oh, okay. Got her. Yeah, we, we, yeah. It's a little bit of a weird name. It's from <laughs> the, the firm that designed its information architects. I think their name. So I think that's where IA came from. Um, oh, I've, yeah. I've, so just, I've, I'm hearing for the first time. I'm going to put put all of them on 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 the on the show notes. Uh, so so, David, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about uh, Black Leader? Yeah, so people can follow you know generally what I'm doing on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Scrivener on Twitter. So that's D A N I E L, Daniel, and then Scrivener S C R I V is in Victor and is in Nancy E R. It's a little bit of a harsh German last name. <laughs> so I've, got to, I've got to spell it. Um, so you can find me at Daniel Scrivener on Twitter. You can also go to danielscrivener.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and see some of what I've uh, written there. And on that website, you can go to Blackletter. You can go to some of my other um, websites. You can see my design portfolio at Made by Scrivener. Um, but yeah, if you go to danielscrivener.com or Daniel Scrivener on Twitter, it's the best way to follow me. Right. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, so apologies for, for a longish podcast, but I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you and I'll, uh, you know, uh, I'm really, really happy to have you on the show and thank you for taking out your time out here. No, thank you so much. And yeah, sorry if this is a slightly long, but um, no, it was wonderful to talk about the stuff and thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.